Shio, shio. Hello, everyone, and happy holidays. Welcome to another episode of the Creative Native Podcast. I hope you're uh, taking some downtime, enjoying your family, um, and just staying safe during this crazy, crazy end of the year that is 2020. You just heard a short clip from the interview I did with Dr. Jessica Siegel, one of my really great friends who has really become such a great advocate and ally for us in Indian country. And you'll hear her, me and her talk about her kind of career as a swimmer uh, and a coach, and as well as kind of uh, a little bit of ranting about the uh, struggles of women in um, coaching and in higher education. And we talk about kind of our work together when we worked um, on some stickball projects and some other things where um, really she got to become more uh, familiar and really help me see things that I wasn't seeing within my own research. Uh, so again, hope you're all staying safe. Wish you the best. Happy holidays and enjoy the episode. So I'm here with Jessica Siegel, uh, not physically, unfortunately, uh, of course, but, um, but Jess, so Jess and I met in our PhD program at the University of Tennessee, but we also went to the same graduate program at the University of Central Florida. Um, didn't overlap, but um, definitely have a lot of commonalities from that experience. But, but Jess, I want to go back. I want to start, like, tell me about... Um, kind of your experience growing up and like how you got involved in swimming and just at like sports in general like what was that like with your family growing up yeah sure I guess um I have been involved in sports in sort of two ways like one as an athlete and also as a fan and both of those things started extremely young for me um I I was a competitive swimmer um basically my whole life and I started how just a lot of kids start swimming is just uh, community swimming lessons and um, once I learned how to swim my mom put me on a um, like a recreational summer league team which which my sisters were also swimming on um, and I was oh probably like five years old then and so it was just summer league fun swimming and um, I guess some friends of ours noticed that me and my two older sisters were all you know fairly talented and said you know they should swim beyond just recreational you know fun swimming they should swim year round on a usa swimming club team and and so that's what we did my mom um got us on a club team i was six years old at the time and um basically from six years six years old on i swam year round um for life um all the way through college um and then kind of at the same time i grew up as a sports fan and that's you know, I'd largely credit my dad for that. Um, if we weren't at swim meets on a weekend, like we had sports on TV. Um, my dad was always watching mainly college basketball and college football, but also some pro football. Um, so those were the three big like professional or I guess the three big sports I grew up watching. Um, and I just remember like weekends on the couch with my dad watching sports. Um, so I grew up I would say my favorite sport growing up was um, college basketball. I consumed a lot of, like, college basketball. And I even at, like, 9, 10 years old, I was participating in my dad's office pool for March Madness. Um, 
That's awesome. So that was like sort of the start, yeah, of my, you know, sports interest, both as a fan and as an athlete. And then, so I swam uh, through high school in Pennsylvania for a really good club team, a really good high school team um, outside of Pittsburgh. It's uh, The club team is called Allegheny North Swim Club. And um, from there, I was um, recruited to swim in college. And um, I ended up at University of Kentucky um, because, well, lots of reasons. Um, it was a fantastic program, and there was, um, um, you know, after my recruiting trip, it was definitely, like, the favorite school I had visited, but my sister actually had swum there also. She was four years older and had swum for University of Kentucky, so um, that's how I ended up um, uh, choosing to go to Kentucky and continuing to swim through through my senior year, so retired from swimming um, after my senior year at about 22, so I swam you know, competitively from six until, until I graduated college. Wow. What was, what was it like kind of, you know, dedicating the majority of your life to the sport and then like, you know, senior year, did it start to kind of set in that, you know, you wouldn't be swimming for, you know, forever or what was that like? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when you grow up doing something and, and you do it, swimming is a fairly, um, intense sport as far as like the practice schedule goes and I'm sure you've heard stories and know that for many swimmers it's before school it's after school you know from the time I was 14 years old I was training you know nine workouts a week um, and so it is who you are um, I remember feeling like when I would introduce myself to somebody you know I'm Jessica and oh I'm a swimmer that's who I am yeah um it's not just like an activity I participate in. It, it is entirely your identity. Um, and, and growing up, that it's, it's like a double-edged sword a little bit. Like on the one hand, you miss out on a lot. Like you don't get to be involved in all the, like, the social things your friends are doing, you know, um, you know, extracurriculars or being involved in like student council or just, you know, clubs at school. Like you don't do that stuff because you're swimming. Right. But at the same time, it affords you some pretty awesome opportunities. Um, you know, like traveling around the country, going to different swim meets, meeting lots of different swimmers from across the country at these meets, making friendships with people you might not meet otherwise. Um, so, you know, it, it becomes so, so much a part of your identity and it also really shapes um your experiences um as you're growing up that you're right when it comes to the end um it is pretty challenging to sort of negotiate your identity after only feeling like you're one thing for so long and I remember thinking that it wasn't fair and this kind of maybe goes into like a larger issue with the structure we have of sport in this country is that for sports like mine for swimming or other non-revenue sports there are really no opportunities um, to continue your sport in a competitive manner after college Um, so I remember thinking it wasn't fair that like it was over Um, I was still getting faster. I swam the best times of my life at NCAAs my senior year. I was still improving, 
but there wasn't a place for, for me to go. Like, there wasn't a place to train or that you could, like, make some sort of money and support yourself. Like, basically, in sports like mine, if you were not the, you know, the Michael Phelps of your sport, really, it's the top few swimmers in our sport that can actually make um, – a livable career out of it and not have to have like a second job or do something else. So, so really, um, that was a hard transition from going from feeling like your sport has been kind of taken from you for no fault of your own, just because there aren't continued opportunities. Um, and then also being like, well, who am I now? If I'm not a swimmer, who am I? Um, and I, I think it took, um, a few years for me to figure that out and maybe I haven't maybe I haven't like totally figured that out now even like 15 years later um perhaps I found my identity and other things related to sport um but it is it is a very difficult transition yeah for sure I can't can't even imagine like like the majority of your life just knowing one thing um and then so how did you decide to to go to UCF um, I like telling this story and I'm glad, I'm glad you asked this question because, you know, there are those people in your life that like might make an impact and they don't realize the impact that they've made in your life because it was something small that they did. And, and for me, this was one of our, um, athletic directors at Kentucky. His name is Bob Bradley and he has since retired, but he was our, um, our athletic director sort of in charge of like the academic side of the athletic department. And I remember it was probably January of my senior year at Kentucky and I'm getting ready to, you know, go to SECs and I know NCAAs are a few weeks after that, but at the same time I'm graduating in May. Um, it's, it's not too common that athletes actually graduate in four years at Kentucky, but I was on track. <laughs> I was graduating, Yeah, but I um, I had no plans for after graduation, so I'm stressing. I'm stressing about sort of like the biggest meets of my life coming up in the next few weeks, and on top of that, um, do I have a plan for after graduation? I'm like, well, I could go to grad school. I could look. I could look for a job, and I did. I looked for a job for a little bit and wasn't really having much success. Yeah. Um, I, I was a I was a business major at Kentucky. And so one day I'm walking through, we call it CATS at Kentucky. It's the Center for Academic and Tutorial Services, our, you know, tutoring center. Yeah. And um, Bob Bradley stops me in the hall and he's like, hey, Jess, what are your plans after graduation? And I must have looked at him like, I have no clue. Like, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. And he's like, oh, whenever you're done here, stop by my office. And I went by his office and he's like, you have to hear about this graduate program at Central Florida, and I think you would be a great fit for it. And he explained to me what the DeVos Sport Business Management Program was at UCF, and he told me about his good friend uh, Richard Labchick, who was oh, the man. who yeah. is currently the yeah was and currently the director. And I was like, yes, this sounds like it's for me. And I had literally like a week or two to throw my application together because the application was due within, you know, such a small time frame. By chance, I had just taken um, the GMAT in case I went to grad school, but I hadn't even applied. So, yeah, I had had that um, 
score at least and I sent off my application and, and I and I got in um, and you know I, I credit a lot of that with um, you know this AD at, at Kentucky that kind of put me on this path and got me to what I would consider the best educational experience of my life is my you know year and a half two years at, at UCF at the DeVos for business management program yeah it's funny that's why I tell people too like I obviously we love our, our undergrad alma maters, but like I feel like my best educational experience was my grad program and the connections that I made from that program like to this day it's like that's a second family to me and it's just it's been so impactful and I feel like the rest of my career and so so you go through that that you know that program and then what was what were you thinking about um, had you thought about coaching? Yeah, so um, interesting, while I was there at UCF, um, uh, I started coaching um, swimming probably because my identity was still wrapped up in, in swimming a little bit. Right. So I started coaching at a local um, high school and club team, um, uh, Trinity Prep, it's outside of Orlando. And um, I found myself just loving being on the pool deck. Like I liked my classes, and like I said, and you know, like we both said, it's a it was a great academic experience. But there was something about like being on a pool deck again um, that just really um, inspired me, and I like felt good about it, and I you know felt like I had some purpose. So I was just doing that really to make some extra money while I was in grad school, and um, so then. it it kind of just became this idea that like maybe I will pursue this um as a career when when we're done when when I graduate and and so that's that's what I did yeah yeah um and then was it were you thinking about like different levels of coaching and like what where did you did you start with like youth coaching or how did that work yeah so while I was there in Orlando I was you know coaching high basically high school age kids but when I kind of made this personal decision that, you know, I'm going to pursue coaching as a career, I was stuck on division one. And that's just because Mm. that was my experience. And that's what I knew. Um, I, I I guess wrongly assumed that I would only be able to like connect or understand athletes of a certain caliber, um, that maybe I couldn't, um, I don't know, find like a common ground or find like commonalities with athletes that weren't division one. I, I don't know necessarily why I thought that just maybe because I didn't know any better. Um, but yeah, coming sort of coming out of um, grad school and that first sort of taste of coaching, I wanted to pursue coaching as I thought it at like the highest level in the U.S. And for me, that was uh, NCAA division one. Right. Right, right, okay. So, and then you d- did the work at USOC too. When did that come into the mix? Right. So it was sort of um, at UCF. Um, we have to do a internship as part of our degree, and it's um, right. I'm not sure it's still structured this way, but the last semester of of your time there, you go and do an internship. And um, I had been exploring like a lot of internship opportunities. Um, and I had applied to the um, USOC internship program um, because I loved Olympic sport. And I thought perhaps that could be a way into USA swimming. Um, 
you know, you know, a coaching internship wasn't really a thing or available. So I knew like I couldn't go directly into coaching that I was going to have to do an internship of, of a different kind. Um, so I applied to the USOC internship program and, um, I always speak volumes of their internship program and I recommend it to my students, my students because of the great experience I had there. Um, I ended up interviewing actually with a a bunch of different national governing bodies and um, uh, sport organizations uh, there in Colorado Springs and ended up um, accepting an internship with the United States Association of Blind Athletes. So it is a Paralympic sport organization um, that, um, you know, promotes sport for blind and visually impaired people. Um, And it was my first experience into Paralympic sport. Um, And um, overall, it was super educational for me. And, and, And the reason being is I actually got put in charge of really being our events manager for the 2007 IBSA World Youth and Student Games. So that is like the world championship for blind sport for kids, I think uh, 13 or maybe 12 to 18 or 12 to 17, something around there. And so we had um, athletes coming from all over the world to Colorado Springs. Um, And so, you know, we were a very small organization at the time. It's slightly bigger now, but we were an organization of three people. We had a ton of volunteers working for us, but you know, I was put in charge of everything from like venues and transportation and housing, um, uh, getting you know visas for these athletes to travel. You know, I'm communicating with foreign consulates, and wow. it was just like putting on a world sporting event on a, on a small scale granted. Cause, um, you know, that we had, I think about 350 athletes from like 26 countries, but it was like almost a mini Olympics. And, um, that was the experience I got. That was the, the best experience I got there is this, um, really deep dive into operations of a world sporting event. Yeah. Um, so, um, on top of that, just like the the overall experience at the USOC, though, is is really cool because when you intern there, um, you live in the dorms um, on campus at the Olympic Training Center. That's so cool. Um, so you're living alongside, you know, some of the biggest athletes, most you know, decorated athletes in the world, and you know, you're eating the meal, your meals in the cafeteria with them, and becoming friends with them, like a lot, like I became friends with, you know, several Olympic athletes who to this day are still my friends, um, and, um, I mean, and the experience of like living in Colorado, and I don't know, all of that was just so, so rewarding for me. Um, and you do, you do get paid. It's, it's a small amount, but you know, your housing and your meals are taken care of, but you also do get paid. So it's always an internship that I, that, um, I try to push among my students. Yeah. Yeah. And so you got that kind of taste of Colorado. Is that why you ended, did you end up staying in Colorado then after that? No, um, I would have liked to, I think, but at this point I was like, I, although I had a fantastic experience with USABA, I realized that while working there, my favorite parts of the job were when I really got to interact with the athletes. Mm. We would we would host 
you know, camps from time to time. And we had a few resident athletes that were living um, at the Olympic Training Center. And, you know, my favorite parts of the job when, like, the athletes were at the Olympic Training Center, um, I was, you know, really interacting with them, whether it was, like, you know, getting them to, like, weigh-ins for their judo matches or, um, you know, helping them with their drug tests when, when USADA came in, whatever it was. Like, the athlete interaction was, like, the best part of my job. And that was only a really small part of my job. So, so that like cemented for me that like I have to get into coaching because athlete interaction is like what I love. Yeah. Um, so when I was finishing up my internship with um, USABA is when I um, started applying for a lot of coaching jobs and, and pursuing that. And um, I finished my internship after about seven or eight months I was there, and then I moved out to Ohio and took my first coaching job at Ashland University, which is a Division II school, um, sort of halfway between Cleveland and Columbus and Ohio, and, and yeah, that was my first coaching job. Yeah, what was the, was there any kind of major aha moments on that first first official kind of position? Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you asked that because I have like a moment that sticks in my mind that I will forever remember that (laughs) I'm um, coaching one of my first sprint workouts. I I really specialized in sprint coaching. And so this was one of the first days that we sort of split our team up into different groups and I'm getting to run my group the way I want to and we're doing a sprint workout. And I'm walking up and down the pool deck and I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. I'm getting paid to hang out with athletes on a pool deck. This is so awesome. And I wasn't getting paid much. Like, let's be totally honest. An assistant swimming coach at the Division II level makes like nothing, (laughs) really. But I was like, this is awesome. This This is what I think I'm meant to do. And after practice that day, my head coach even pulled me aside and he said, I was watching what you were doing over there. Like, this is exactly what I envisioned for us. And I was like, okay, like, yes, this is, this is what I need to be doing. And I think I've found my, my, at least for now, I, I, for then at that time, I really thought I'd found like my career path. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so then, so then what, so then what, 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 tell me about the kind of the coaching kind of carousel that you not carousel but you know kind of evolution yeah you can call it the coaching carousel because that's totally a real thing yeah in in coaching we know that you don't move up within your organization like if you want to move up you have to move schools so so I did and um my first um my first move was to a division one school after I was at Ashland I went to University of Pittsburgh um Originally being from Pittsburgh, I was super excited about this job. Yeah, um, it's going to be like dream job. Yeah, right? <laughs> right? Like I'm back in my hometown. Um, and, and for some reason it carried like some prestige that I wasn't expecting. You know, like people I went to high school with found that like impressive. They're like, oh, you're coaching Division One. That's and, and I guess because I was a Division One athlete, I didn't internalize that previously as being like a big deal but I mean I was 24 at the time like I guess that was a big deal to be an assistant at a, at a D1 program yeah. um, but I very quickly realized that you know sport had consumed my life as an athlete 
and now here I am coaching division one and it was consuming my life again. And by this point in my life, I had developed like a lot of outside hobbies. I really valued my free time. And although this is where I thought I wanted to be at division one, um, I, 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 I thought like, okay, the prestige of division one or the caliber of these athletes isn't worth it to me and my like personal happiness. Um, I want weekends and I want, um, summers or, you know, whatever it was. Um, I I just, I I very quickly realized that like I was wrong about division one. It might've been a fine place for me to be as an athlete, but as a coach, it's not what I wanted for my life. Um, so, um, I coached went back to a division two program after that, uh, California university of Pennsylvania. Um, and coached a women, I uh, was an assistant coach for a women's team there. Um, and had a really good experience there. Loved being back at division two. Um, while I was there, we had a, um, national champion and a woman break the national record in the 50 freestyle. So we were pretty successful there. Um, and then, you know, life sort of happens and I got married my husband got stationed in Colorado. So back to Colorado, we moved. And at this point, um, you know, I was just looking to take any coaching job. Coaching jobs um, don't pop up all the time everywhere. Usually you have to go to where the job is. You can't plant yourself in a city and hope a job comes up. So um, we get back to Colorado and um, by chance at a division three school in Colorado, an assistant coaching position opened up. And so I started coaching swimming um for the first time at the division three level there at colorado college Mm. so so i hit all three divisions in my in my coaching career which was totally educational super fun um yeah yeah that's awesome and so Uh then you decide to go back and what then what kind of prompted that that change go back to school go back to school well um I think just my life, my, the point I was in my life. So I was now um, an assistant coach at a, at a Division three school, um, and I knew at some point I was going to have to like start applying for those head coaching positions, mm-hmm. um, and and I saw what that lifestyle looked like, um, and. I just didn't see how that would fit with my life. So my husband is in the military. He's gone for months out of the year and we knew we wanted to have children. And when I looked at a, the lifestyle of a coach where it's often nights, it's often weekends, I just didn't see how that was possible. Um, when you're basically a single mom for like large stretches of the year, Um, we had no like family or support system in Colorado. Um, so basically I decided, you know what, like I can't pursue a coaching career if I want a family. Now, like, I want to not say that like, that's the case for everyone. Like there are so many successful women who have a family and a coaching career, um, just because of our unique circumstances without like much family support around with a spouse that has gone for long periods of time. Like I didn't see how that would work for us. Right. Um, 
but one thing I did know is that like I really enjoy being in an academic environment, being on a college campus. Right. Um, and I also really enjoy hanging out with young people like 18 to 22 years old. Yeah. Um, so, and on top of that, keeps I'm a school nerd, right? Keeps you young. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it absolutely keeps you young. Um, I know like what music to listen to. I know what like clothes are cool. Yeah. Like. <laughs> so yeah. I wanted to I wanted to stay in that environment, um, and I and to to be fair, I am a school nerd, right? Like I had an undergrad degree. I had the I had two master's degree from Central Florida through my coaching carousel. I collected another master's degree at Cal PA. Like I love going to school. So um, when I knew like putting all those things together, like the PhD made sense. And um, what I really wanted to research in in sport management was um, women in coaching, or I should say, like the lack of women in coaching, the underrepresentation of women in in coaching. And so when I started putting out some like feelers at programs to look at people who are sort of studying things, um, you know, in this vein, um, University of Tennessee was recommended to me, mm-hmm. and. Um, being a University of Kentucky graduate and like a wildcat like through and through, it was kind of hard for me to um, make that decision to go to Tennessee. But in the end, <laughs> it was it was absolutely the right one. Um, Infiltrate so, from within, Jess. Infiltrate from within. Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, I I made sure never to like wear my Kentucky stuff around campus. Like I wasn't gonna be a full on like ball for life but I also wasn't gonna like disrespect and wear like Kentucky stuff around campus right right yeah (laughs) totally um yeah so that's that's how the decision was made to to go to Tennessee and get my PhD yeah and then that's where we cross paths and I love I loved the research that you were doing like was there a moment kind of in your kind of career where you realized like wow, this needs to be, like, people need to be talking about this more, like, on, like, the the, kind of the gender inequity stuff. Yes, absolutely. And I wish you could see me right now because I'm, like, emphatically, like, shaking my head yes. Yes. Um, (laughs) I, um, it occurred to me, like, very early on in my coaching career, it was actually my first year of coaching when I was at Ashland University, and um, we took a pretty good-sized team to Division II NCAAs that year. And, um... I'm on the pool deck probably like the first day of the meet and I am and and for those of you who don't know how swimming works at the NCAA level like it is a very like co-ed sport um you know the men and women don't compete against each other but they are at all the same meets together they train in the pool together or like I am coaching men and women side by side every day in lanes you know intermixed um so so when I got on the pool deck at, at D2 Nationals, which at the D2 level, um, men and women have their national meet together. Mm. Um, yeah, I think of like one... track, you know, I think that's, I think a good yeah. comparison, Ex- but, but exactly. it, is so, it is so different than like almost any other, what people think about when they think about sports. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah. So there were no other women, well, very few other women on the pool deck. Um, and I'm like, what is going on here? The fact that like 50% of athletes at this meet are women, actually more than that because of, um, 
how the numbers work for NCAA is actually more women get to go to the NCAA, the national championship meet, um, more women get to go to the national championship meet than men do. Anyway, um, I'm like, where are the yeah. female coaches? And, um, so from that first year of coaching, it has always sort of been on my mind. And that point was only driven home the more places that I coached and how I saw very few women on the pool deck, um, everywhere I went. Um, but I do like to highlight the fact that my last coaching position at Colorado college, um, we actually had an all female staff for a men's and women's team, which was probably unheard of. Right. We might've been the only one in the country at the time. I might say, cause we had, we had a combined men's and women's team at Colorado college, our head coach, um, is a woman and Goodman James and she's still there and she's sort of a legend in um the coaching community she's been coaching for gosh probably 45 years now um and I was the assistant coach and then our diving coach also um was a woman so we had an all-female staff for a men's and women's team and I think um that kind of like also inspired That's me because my head coach yeah. yeah my head coach Anne would make a big deal about like she not a big deal but she mentioned it from time to time and I'm like this is this is cool like how can how can we have more of this in our sport? Right, right. And then I felt like, gosh, when we started working together at Tennessee, like we just saw like so many discrepancies between women and men. It was almost as if like once Title Nine and like once women's sports became t- taken more seriously, the less like they trusted women to coach, you know, and and administrate the things. Uh, y- Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, and and the statistics bear that out if you, like, want to look at it. That post-Title IX, you have this huge influx of women and girls participating in sport, but the percentage of female coaches actually starts to drop. Um, And I do think that's a product of what you mentioned, like, the leadership, maybe athletic director. thinking that women were capable of coaching of coaching sports and so hiring men in those positions, but then also um, the status of women's sports just increased. Yeah. So it wasn't like frowned upon for a man to coach women's basketball. That was actually looked at as like a good job and potentially a stepping stone to coach men's basketball. So positions that were previously thought of like, oh, women coach women, um, that wasn't the case anymore after Title IX. Um, men started competing for jobs that they hadn't been previously. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, and then you ended up, so we actually were able to collaborate, kind of tying it back to the Native stuff. We were able to collaborate on some of my research and um, you kind of were alongside me. We were kind of, I feel like we were learning like kind of the Western way of research while also like trying to unlearn some of the stuff at the same time. Cause it was just, um, it was a wild kind of eye-opening experience. I know for me, just learning about how research is done and how kind of the, you know, reporting and, or the, you know, journal article, you know, the game is kind of played and then, what you know what research actually means and what what it can what it can look like and um I was so thankful to have you and like you you just more than almost like anyone you know more than many people I've worked with you're just so like 
will like asking the right questions and like being able to see things from another perspective that I definitely was too close to sometimes, you know, with my own experience. And so um, that was so great. And then you end up, you know, at a university that um, has a pretty heavy, you know, native population. And um, I'm just, I'm just curious from your perspective, what was like, was there, you know, what were the things that kind of stood out to you? Like, like what, was there anything that in particular that interest you, interested you about kind of the, yeah, yeah, no, I feel like there's so much in that, what you just said that I want to, that I want to touch on. Yeah. Um, f- first of all, I'm grateful for having met you to sort of introducing me to, um, native American sport and like research in it, um, to be, totally transparent now I think you are the first like culturally native person I have met Mm -hmm. um in my life like (laughs) and that's saying something like um I grew up in Pittsburgh and you know I might have met people that claim some sort of like native heritage but beyond that I had really no experience with native people um so meeting you I had all sorts of questions and I'm sort of an inquisitive person and you were always very like happy to answer my questions um but I think that's maybe important for your listeners to know is that like um there's a lot of white people like me that like know nothing or previously knew nothing about the Native American experience or Native American culture or anything like that because we just haven't had exposure absolutely um hundred percent yes and that's what I tried to explain to people all the time I was like they just people just don't know like they don't know yeah yeah so I mean and and like I said like I'm I love to learn I'm a school nerd so when I met you I'm like all right what do I need to learn and so we jumped into some of those research projects and some of the things I found like alongside alongside you is like really interesting like um, one, one of the things I remember from our research that stuck out to me was when you interviewed the, the elders, um, how they talked to you, um, in this like storytelling fashion, like I was reading through one of your interview transcripts and it was, you asked one question and the answer went on for like pages. Yeah. Um, yeah. that's what was and, so funny to me when people were talking about like interviews, not being long enough. And I was like, Oh, I don't have that problem. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, okay, there's something here that like a qualitative research, the kind of research that we do fits really well with this because you come from a storytelling culture. And so we need to like, that needs to be part of our research. And we need to like really dig into what the, the impact or the the importance, I guess I should say, of storytelling in your culture is and how how well that fits then with qualitative research. Um, so yeah, that was really fun to be a part of. And, um, and yeah, like you said, there are things that you know about your culture that maybe you sort of like take for granted that you think yeah. that, that you may assume people know, but, um, as a white person, as an outsider, um, I had to be like, Nat, can you explain this to me a little bit more? Like, what does, what does this mean? Um, and so I think that provided like a really great collaboration is that you had this insider knowledge, but then also you had the like dumb, ignorant person who would ask all the questions, <laughs> you know? No, I think um, it may, I think it's, I think it's like really, cause at first, you know, you come in and 
I feel like Native people were protective of our people and of our, our you know, our, our work. And so you want to kind of protect and kind of shield. But it's like, man, you really, I think we need, we need that outsider perspective. But it's, it's hard because oftentimes the outsider come in and then they, you know, they fly in and they leave, then they leave, you know, and it's like, it's mean for me now, it's like, okay, how can we continue to like connect and contribute and do stuff that's beneficial for the community that's not just for a, a publication or something, you know? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's no secret that like minority populations have, and specifically indigenous people have long been subjects to some pretty terrible research all in the name of like science or whatever or social science yeah um so i support that research done with um indigenous people should be done by indigenous people um uh because there is that distrust there so um yeah i i totally support that and i'm just glad that you have um, allowed me to be a part of it and contribute. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, what has it been like at UNC Pembroke? With yeah, the... so I, yeah, I forgot we were getting to yeah, that. Yeah. Um, so, I, um, it's been a great fit um, for me personally um, at UNC Pembroke because, as you mentioned, it has a high Native population. So. UNC Pembroke is part of the um, UNC State School System, um, and it's a you know mid-sized university in um, southeastern North Carolina, and it's right in the heart of what we call Lumbee Country. Mm. So the the Lumbee Tribe is um, um, located mainly in this area of North Carolina, and I think. Census, put, census puts them at like 50 or 60,000 people. So it's a really big um, population. Yeah. And they, um, in the late 1800s, started a school for Indians. Um, uh, and that has become what is today UNC Pembroke. Um, so for a long time, so the school was started, it was the first school started by Native Americans for Native, Native Americans. Yeah. Um, and for a long time, it was solely a school for um, for Lumbees. And then it did expand into other tribes. And then, gosh, I think, and I'm, I'm not a historian, especially on my own school, but somewhere in like the 50s or 60s, it, it fully integrated. Yeah. Um, and so our current population, I think, is... Um, we're still a minority-serving institution. I think we're about 30% white, 30% black, 15 to 20% Native, and then the rest is, you know, other, I guess. I, I hate to use that term, but right. um, <laughs> smaller minorities of, of ethnic groups. Yeah. So um, what's really cool and um, what's really cool there is how the the native culture is tied to the school um the lumbee people consider unc pembroke their school yeah. so a lot of our faculty is lumbee a lot of our staff is lumbee um and native culture is tied into graduation ceremony into um our convocation um we have during um Native American um, Heritage Month, we have a lot of, like, um, there's Native food days. Um, and, and also then just in the classroom, 
there's a lot of conversation that will come up that I don't think comes up at other schools because they don't have any sort of native population or, you know, a negligible native population. So we have, um, you know, things regarding race and sport always come up in classroom conversation. And you often hear like black and white perspective, but I don't think in many classrooms around the country, you, you often get a native perspective. Um, and that's been one of the really cool things at, at, at UNC Pembroke is that like, we're hearing the native American voice on like a daily basis. And that's nothing special. Like that's, what's yeah. kind of cool. It's not like, Oh, we have like a native to talk about this issue. No, it's like just part of our daily conversation. And, you know, um, it's not anything new or exciting because it just is part of the culture at Pembroke. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. I love that that you ended up there, and you know, and it. I think it too. It's we've had a lot more conversations about this, and I don't want to get too deep in it, but um, you know, they're you know the Lumbee are, are state recognized in North Carolina. They're not federally recognized. That's something they've been fighting for 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 centuries, and and they've you know been in conflict with my my own tribe. And 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 I when I meet people too, I, I try to tell them, you know, I'm not. I'm not about telling someone they're in there they're not native but like it's funny how I grew up kind of with that you know growing up in Cherokee that there was kind of that like oh well well, Lumbees aren't they're not real native you know like just within our own community how bad that kind of those kind of perceptions are when it's like when we're talking about federal recognition like what that like oh so the government recognizes us is that really and like just things like blood quantum too it's like is that really what we should be valuing you know and so i i I've, I've, that's something i've you know really struggled with and like had to kind of come to terms with in my like past couple of years just learning about all the complexities of like native american identity and i just think it's so fascinating and you know, I'm not, and now I tell people, I'm like, I'm not going to tell anyone they're, they're not native, but I'm going to also like, want to know like who in your community claims you, you know, and like what, and what that community, and obviously the Lumbees, they have a huge community and they have, you know, I think our, our tribe kind of sometimes questions the, the culture, but then I also wonder how much of it is just the fear of the the competition on the casinos, you know, like it's like, it's, it's, right. super com- it's super complex. It's not, it's not simple. And so like, I really, um, yeah, I feel like I'm glad you were kind of in that position. Cause I feel like you at least had a little bit of context to that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think something that's like important to understand with like the Lumbees is that, that like it's, they've been, we know that there's probably like several tribes that all were like pushed into these like swamp areas of North Carolina. Yeah. And so like much culture was probably lost, you know, at the hand of like colonization. Right. So, so whether or not they've like been able to maintain a native culture is, isn't really the question because they've been treated by white people a certain way for so long um, that the, I mean, it doesn't matter, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And um, there is like a fantastic article that I like to point people to um, from the Washington Post. It came out a couple years ago and the title of the article is what makes someone native American. Mm. Um, And it specifically deals with the Lumbee tribe and sort of these questions that you, you have raised. Um, 
But when, like, you're born into a Lumbee family and you are told you're Native American and for, you know, all the generations of your history, you have believed you are Native American, like, that is what you are, you know? Like, we, we don't need to question that. Like, yep. that's, that's how you were raised. That's the community that you are in. Like, um, yeah, it, it is not your or my position to question or say that you're not. Yeah, and I can guarantee there's plenty of people in the Lumbee community who have done more for kind of indigenous peoples as a whole than some of the people who claim like Cherokee heritage, you know, like that's the thing to me. It's like, what are you doing for your community? It's not so much about like, Oh, what blood degree are you? And like, and I think it, the, the whole colonization pits us against one another in that way. They, want us, they want us to fight. <laughs> and there, there's a whole, and Matt, I know you're deep into academic Twitter. Like I am, there's yeah. a, a couple great Lumbee scholars that I follow on Twitter. Um, so it's, it's, I'm um, really heartening to see, um, you know, what they've done for their community and the research that they're doing and the and the position that they've taken um, for their community. Yeah, absolutely. So um, before I let you go, I do want to kind of do a kind of a hot topic because uh, I, 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 I would love to. I love talking about this kind of stuff. So obviously with COVID, it's been like honestly like I considered myself you talk about college basketball I considered probably college football to be my biggest like sport and then yeah this year has been the most like t- it's, it's just been this so hard to like even be a fan because of like <sighs> the problematic stuff and then also you know now being me being at division three school where you know athletics is a huge thing here but we're completely it's like very you know much underfunded it's very much do do more with less and you see kind of the the coaches at like division one level and cutting programs so I guess either one I guess the the problem being a sports fan in COVID and also like this conflict at the college level with you know um with sports and being cut and this like opportunities being cut just I love your thoughts yeah um and I and I do have some thoughts on this so First of all, I think that for a long time there's been like major problems with the way institutions are using their financial resources, um, sort of the mismanagement of finances in college athletic departments. The exorbitant coaches' salaries and the insane facilities, and I'm talking at like the Division One level, right? The insane facilities, um, the recruiting. Um, the money they put in towards recruiting and you would think like a global pandemic would expose these things and they did, but it didn't create any sort of fixes. Mm -hmm. What it did was just continue the problems that already exist in financial mismanagement and say, well, let's, let's cut these teams to kind of make up some of the shortfall. And first of all, the teams that they are cutting are not making up any shortfall. Oh, of, God, yeah. You know, some of these schools are losing 30, $40 million and they're going to cut a program that year to year costs less than a million dollars to operate. Like yeah. that, that makes zero sense to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of the teams that they, um, you know, we cut a team at UNC Pembroke, the women's golf team got cut. Um, so there are a bunch of female athletes now that, don't have opportunities to participate in their sport. Um, 
you know, the if you look at the mission of the NCAA and its member institutions, it's to provide, um, it, well, first it says educational, but also athletic opportunities. Opportunity. Opportunities. <laughs> exactly. We are not, provi- like, we are not providing those opportunities. We are providing crazy salaries to football coaches, and we are not providing ap- opportunities to student-athletes. Um, and that is just like absolutely heartbreaking for me every day yesterday. I think I saw the article that South Carolina is considering cutting its men's and women's swimming program among a few other women's sports. Um, absurd. It's it's absurd. absurd. Absolutely. Like tell me you can't make up that money somewhere else. Um, it, it is, it is absolutely heartbreaking to me what is happening. Um, and it is just a complete failing of this capitalist system of professional sport in a college environment, um, all all on the on the backs of unpaid labor in in our in our athletes. So I am I'm totally like appalled by the situation. Um, yeah, and it, it, it blows my mind too because like seeing being at Division three, obviously our students don't you know we don't have, don't have scholarship and our students pay to it and like shoot we're we're learning that like our athletes are so valuable too because they stay on campus they they're room and board like that's that's a huge money thing i saw there was a tweet yesterday that said um that um d3 schools have added 40 sports since march and d1 schools have dropped 99 sports since march like you can see the the tuition like drive there and versus the commercialization of of you know of the sports yeah you're right it's it's two separate realities in this COVID thing and i kind of get lost in division one occasionally but having coached at division two and division three especially coaching a sport like swimming i know that keeping our rosters big was important for tuition dollars. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a reality at, at division two and division three schools is that like they need the athletes there for, for the money they bring in, in the way of like tuition and uh, housing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's well, and then we don't have time to get into higher ed, all the issues with higher ed, but, <laughs> but like, yeah, it is just, it's so wild to me and it's just, it, it kills yeah. me too how just the decisions that are being made and you know while the NCAA in general is kind of like you know I feel like on its on its last leg but we'll we'll see you know we'll see what I think I think the pandemic has brought so I think pandemic has just kind of sped things up a lot you yeah know? And, well it's, it's, it's brought a lot of things to light and you yeah. think you would think that it would help sort of correct the problems that have long existed because it's now exposing them but it but it it hasn't i feel like it's been like okay we're gonna keep marching down this path for better or for worse and it's it's gonna be for worse um i just don't see like a good outcome here um and kind of to answer that question that you started with is like how do you reconcile this like your criticism of sport alongside like being a fan and i and i've kind of been thinking about this and I realized you can be really critical of the structures, the institutions, that the organizations that that run sport, that support sports, but you can be fans of the athletes. And I yes. think that at the end of the day, that's where I land. Yes. Is that like I love athletes? They work hard. They have a commitment to something. They are um, 
fully invested in something like most people will never be in anything in their lives. So I am a fan of athletes, even if I am like hypercritical of the institutions that are supposedly supporting sport. Absolutely. Yes. I'm with you hundred percent. Cause like, I'm, I'm so dedicated. And, and when I've watched the majority of the college football I've watched, of course, watched Tennessee, but I've also watched my guy, Teton Saltes at University of New Mexico, my native guy, because I like know, you know, it's a personal connection. And like, I care about him and uh-huh. I want him to do good. And so it is so much more about that athlete. And I think and this is what I tell people about the, the mascot issue, too, is like I can be a fan of a sports team and also critique the mascot. Like I, I feel like it's everything's so binary that you can't you have to pick and choose, but it's like, no, I can, I think we can critique these systems and also love them. And I think that's the thing is like you, we will, we want them to change because, because we love them, you know, and we want them to, to be, to be good and to prosper and things like that. So. Absolutely. Like I want a place for um, swimmers to be able to compete. I want them to have, you know, options to go to college and continue training and participating in their sport. Um, I, I want those opportunities for student athletes. And um, so, yeah, we, we need to take like a really hard look at like how institutions are choosing to deal with um, the pandemic and, you know, claiming these budgetary shortfalls are going to be fixed by cutting, you know, some of these non-revenue smaller Olympic sports. Like it's just, it's a really heartbreaking situation right now for, for a lot of athletes. Yeah. Especially when a coach is making like 80 million or whatever ridiculous amount of money. <laughs> yeah. More well, than I, I mean, and, and I think we can go on about this, like too, like the, the, the contract buyouts that are like oh ongoing payments, <laughs> you know, like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I've never been more like upset and I'm like, please, like, like people are talking about firing Tennessee's coach. And I'm like, don't, and if you do, I will be so livid. Cause it's just like, right, like it's, tell it's, me exactly how much money you're getting paid to not work. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, we're still paying three coaches. Can we, can we not, can we not do that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, so great. Thank you so much, Jess. It was awesome. And I'm, I'm starting kind of a scholar series here and I want to, uh, you know, I kind of, I was a little bit inspired over the weekend with the, outrageous wall street journal commentary about the doctor uh dr jill oh yeah (laughs) so i'm all about highlighting scholars and i think that um we i think there's just such a interesting intersection with at higher ed and kind of the rest of what's going on in the world so um and i just always value your your thoughts and your you know your perspective so thank you for coming on Well, thanks for having me, Nat. It was wonderful to chat and catch up with you. And um, I look forward to to listening to more of your, your episodes. Yes.